Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from First uh, Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 39, and you can follow along in your pew Bible on page 283. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. All the people answered, Well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he has wandered away, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud, and as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. And you may notice that things are a little darker in the sanctuary today. Uh, They are because uh, we had a storm about a week ago and it came through and it it knocked out five banks of overhead stage lighting. 
in here. Uh, so I'm being uplit today from the front of the stage, and it doesn't really matter that much for the folks in the room, but if you're watching online and I seem darker, I just want to assure you that's not a spiritual reality. Uh, it's it's just, just a, a, a reality. Um, hey, this is one of the great stories that is in the Bible. Light and the Prophets of Baal, what an amazing, amazing story. And it, it's the final story in our series, Best Stories Ever. And this is certainly... One of them, we're going to get into that in just a second, but this week I had a chance to go to the Global Leadership Summit here at Ebenezer Church, uh, Thursday and Friday. Some of you were there with me. And during the Global Leadership Summit, one of the speakers talked about the nature of generational differences. And he said that one of the things you have to understand is that if you're trying to talk to millennials, as people born between the late 70s and the late 90s, that you have to give them the end of the story first. And then they'll hear the rest of the story. You gotta let them see the end of the video game first, then they'll play the rest of the video game. You gotta give them the end of the sermon first, then they'll listen to the rest of it. So I thought I'd try it. Here we go. This is where we're gonna end up. I believe the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal teaches us how to find the fire of purpose and power in our lives again. Do you ever feel as if your life is lacking fire? Purpose, power. This story, though it's almost 3,000 years old, I believe this story teaches us something about how to find fire, power, and purpose once more in our lives. So, it begins with a fantastic question from Elijah to the people of Israel. Elijah says, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, serve Him. If Baal, serve Him. How long? How long? Make a choice. If you're going to follow God, follow God. Something else, stop playing. Make a choice. It's a great question. How long will we go limping with two different opinions? Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. He said, either you love the one and hate the other, you hate the one and love the other. And Jesus concluded that by saying you can't serve both God and money. But it's not just money that competes with Christ for centrality in our lives. There are other things that compete for centrality with Christ in our lives. One of those other things is comfort and ease and things that feel good. Did you know that Baal was a fertility god? Which means that people who venerated him, who worshipped him, got to do things that felt good. God, however, was a God who required some degree of temperance. Here's the question that encounters us right at the beginning of this amazing story. What is the thing that competes with God for centrality in your life? Have we made our careers the God of our lives, our families, our relationships? How many of us have made our children our ultimate concern? Pastor, are you saying that careers, relationships, and children are bad? No, I'm saying we can't serve two masters, church. And until we make God the center, the foundation of our lives, we're not going to find the fire. I love the way that Augustine said it. He said it very famously. He said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts will not rest until they rest in you. What I'm about to tell you, I'm not proud of. 
But there have been times in my life that I have made alcohol the center of my life. It was called college. There have been times in my life I've made relationships, times I've made children the center of my life, times I've even made my career the center of my life. And you might say, but wait a minute, you work at the church. Yeah. You talk about a a profound draw towards idolatry. It's really very possible for pastors to put the church above God. But here's what I can tell you with absolute assurance. That those times in my life when I have made Christ the center have been the most joyful, most fulfilling, most fire-filled times in my life. What competes with Christ to be at the center of your life? How about what competes with Christ to be at the center of your children's lives? I wonder if we've taught our children that children that academic pursuits should be at the center of their lives. Listen, you're not going to meet somebody who's more in favor of education than I am, but if we teach our children that academics should be the center of their lives, what what happens when they graduate? Perhaps their career becomes the center of their lives and then they wake up at 45 or 50 years old and realize that they chose a center that wasn't appropriate to being the center of their lives? Or maybe... Maybe our children find that soccer or baseball or lacrosse or volleyball is the center of their lives. You know, if I'm taking my children away from regular worship experiences to play a sport, it's sending them a message. Does that mean soccer is bad? No. Boring? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Pastor Monica. It's not bad. However, teaching my children that anything other than Christ can be the center of their lives is an unworthy endeavor. I'm not saying don't take your kids on a travel soccer weekend. I'm saying when you do, make sure worship's part of it. Go to a different church. Take Ebenezer online with you, but for the sake of our children, don't, don't, don't teach them that anything other than Christ is a worthy center for their lives. What is it that competes with Christ to be at the center of your life? And this is a hard one right here. Listen, if I'm living in a nice house and I'm driving a nice car and I'm going on nice vacations, but I'm not tithing, I am stealing from God and I'm robbing myself of peace. Our lives are not going to have peace until Christ is at the center of them and we're not going to experience financial peace until Christ is at the center of our finances. We want to know where our priorities lie. There's only two places we have to look. Look at your calendar and look at your bank account. How do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? That's what my priority is. So here's the first lesson of this amazing story. Elijah says, pick a God. Pick a center. Pick an ultimate concern. The prophet Elijah asked the question, how long will we go limping with two different opinions? We can't serve two gods. We can't have two centers. Right at the beginning of the story, there's a gut check for believers. Who is really at the center of our lives? But that's not the only lesson. There's another one. You see, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal is not a story about the virtue of faith. The prophets of Baal had faith, yes? This is a story about having faith in the right thing. Not all gods are created equal. Not all gods are created Not everything that we strive to place at the center of our lives is worth being at the center of our lives. So the lesson isn't just pick a God. 
It's pick the right God. I'm going to spend the next couple of moments exploring this idea about the importance of placing Christ at the center of our lives. And, and I want to do that. I want to share the importance of unabashedly claiming Christ as Lord and the art of doing so without being a jerk about it. It has become culturally sensitive in our society to be wildly inclusive when it comes to religion. I understand that. And I believe people should be allowed, they should have the right to worship God in whatever manner they see fit. But here is something we as Christians need to understand. The event of Jesus Christ was either necessary or it wasn't. The event of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection were either necessary to restore humanity to God or they weren't necessary. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was either necessary for our restoration to God's good graces or he wasn't. And if Christ wasn't necessary, if the cross was in vain, it makes God into a tyrant for sending Christ to it. It was necessary. There was no other way. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author and apologist, made a wonderful argument for the lordship of Jesus Christ. He said Jesus had to be one of three things. He either had to be Lord, liar, or lunatic. He either had to be who he says he was, Lord. He wasn't who he said he was and he knew it. He was a liar. Or he wasn't who he said he was and he didn't know it. He had mental stability issues. You know, the problem, though, with claiming that Jesus was a liar is this. Why would someone tell a lie and then die for it? It doesn't make any sense. Perhaps the single greatest piece of evidence for the veracity of the resurrection is the reality that 11 of the 12 disciples died for what they believed. Perhaps one person would make something up, a lie, and die for it, but a group of them, of course not. It doesn't make sense. Jesus wasn't a liar. So maybe he was mentally unstable. The problem with that is that in the four historical accounts we have of Jesus' life, at no point, not a single time, does he indicate in any way that he lacks mental stability. So using C.S. Lewis' language, if Jesus wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic, that leaves only one option. He was Lord. And if he was Lord, he is the only Lord. Unapologetically, unapologetically, without equivocation, Christians believe there is one God and Jesus Christ is the only way to reach that God. That's not the problem. The problem is that Christians throughout the ages have often used the lordship of Christ as a weapon against others. When I was a kid, I did street evangelism. Yeah, I walked around those tracks and I tried to scare people. I was kind of a jerk about it. I was. Have any of you ever been to a a Nationals baseball game? Anybody in here? Anybody? A few of you? So my wife and I went to our first National baseball game uh, last year. And uh, we, we took the train into the city and we were coming up off the escalator. And as soon as we came off the escalator and we turned towards the stadium, we were surrounded by all these people holding up these signs. Most of them were Christians and most of the signs were tremendously judgmental in nature. And my first reaction was anxiety, which is what pastors say when they want to tell you they were angry but not admit to it. I was angry. I was angry because I get lumped in with those people. I'll tell you this, and this I'm not proud of this either, but here's the truth. I, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes I find that I am ashamed of the way other Christians act. Once my anger passed, it gave way to truthfully, the next thing I felt was sadness. I was just sad. I was sad at the way these people were limiting the scope of God's grace. I I was sad at the foolishness of their tactics. Do you know, do you really know that we can't scare people into heaven? We can't. It's a bad tactic. But that's not all. I believe Jesus is the only way to God, but I don't know all the way God chooses to apply the grace of Jesus Christ to the world. It's true that Jesus is the only way to God, but how is the grace of Christ applied? Well, throughout Christian history, there have been three ways that we've talked about the manner in which God applies the grace of Jesus Christ. The first manner in which God applies the grace of Jesus Christ is something called Christian exclusivism. Christian exclusivism. Here's what Christian exclusivism says. And I talked about this for about a a few minutes, uh, about a year and a half ago, so it might be reviewed for some of you. Christian exclusivism says that... In order to go to heaven, in order to be reconciled with God, we must confess the name of Jesus Christ and ask God to forgive our sins and and we'll be saved. And and there's a a biblical principle for this. And I believe that that is the way way that you and I, as, as people who have heard the gospel, that is the way that we find reconciliation with God is through Christ. But the problem with Christian exclusivism is that the vast majority of people of history have, have either never heard the name of Christ, or if they've heard the name of Christ, they haven't heard the gospel, or if they've heard the gospel, they haven't heard a full gospel. The problem with Christian exclusivism is that it condemns the vast majority of people who have ever lived. So there's another way to talk about how the grace of Christ gets applied. It's called Christian universalism. And Christian universalism says... Everybody goes to heaven. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everybody goes to heaven. And that sounds great. But there's a problem. The problem with Christian universalism is that Christian universalism robs me of my freedom. You see, if I'm really free, I have to be free even to say no to God. Or I'm not really free. Christian exclusivism condemns the vast majority of people who have ever lived Christian universalism robs us of our freedom, but there is a third option. It's called, it's called Christian inclusivism. Christian inclusivism is the idea that God can apply the grace of Jesus Christ in whatever way God sees fit to do so. It honors the promises of Scripture like those found in Romans chapter 10. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts, God raised Him from the dead. We shall be saved. That remains true. But the idea of Christian inclusivism also provides that God can extend the grace of Christ to people who have never heard the gospel or who have never heard the complete gospel. Back to the guys standing outside the baseball stadium. Their problem wasn't that they were serving the wrong God. The problem was they were trying to do God's job for him. It's not their place to judge. It's not mine and it's not yours. It's our job to follow the one true God to bear witness to the work that God has done in our lives, claiming that Christ is the one way to God is great, but it is not my job to condemn. And you know, we see this in the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. When Elijah is praying for the fire to come, here's what he says. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah wasn't compromising. He wasn't running away from the fact that God was God. 
But he also wasn't there to condemn. He was there to save. The story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal teaches us, first, choose a God. Pick something to center our lives on. But secondly, it teaches us not only to pick a God, but pick the right God. We as Christians should unapologetically claim the necessity of Jesus. Though we must do so without condemnation, because our task is not to condemn, but to bear witness to what God has done for us. Which brings us to the third point in the story. When we pick a God, when we pick the right God and unapologetically make Jesus Christ the center of our lives, it is in that moment we begin to experience the fire of power and purpose again. Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel. And Baal doesn't show up. You know why Baal doesn't show up? Mostly it's because he doesn't exist. I love the part in the story, by the way, when Elijah says to the people, the prophets, he says, Pray louder! Maybe he's taking a nap. I love it. As evening came, Baal was a no-show. And Elijah commands the people to do something that's odd. He says, I want you to pour water over the altar. And then he says, I want you to do it again. And he said, I want you to do it again. Three times. The reason that's important to note is because at this time in Israel's history, they were experiencing a great drought. Water was in short supply. And what Elijah was saying is, what little I have, O God, I'm giving to you. We may not feel as if we have an abundance in our lives, but when we give God what we have, God sends the fire. And while Baal was silent, God issues forth a shower of light and flame so potent as to consume the sacrifice and the altar and the wood and the rocks and the dust and the water. God infuses the people with an outpouring of fire, a demonstration of power, a renewed gift of purpose. Power and purpose. That's what God gives to the people of Israel. And when we make Christ the center of our lives, that is what God does for us. It really is that simple. If I am in a life where I am lacking fire, power, and purpose, I need to ask myself some questions. Have I picked one center? Is it the right center? And am I offering God all that I have? The problem with following Baal is there's no power and purpose in it. Remember earlier we talked about the things that can take our attention away from God. Careers, relationships, money, soccer, whatever. You know the problem with placing something else other than God at the center of our lives is that when we place something at the center of our lives that lacks purpose and power, our lives eventually begin to lack purpose and power. But when we choose one God... When we choose the real God, our lives begin to regain the fire of power and purpose again. Don't you see? That's why God calls us to God's own self. It's not an act of arrogance on God's behalf. God simply knows that we will not experience life, true life, until our lives are centered on Him. Elijah picked the one true God. And God gave him a purpose. 
His purpose was to save the people of Israel. And God blessed him with power to stand alone as he did so. I often have a tendency to formulate sermons using the what, so what, now what model. What does the scripture tell us? So what does that mean for my life? Now what am I supposed to do? What's the what of the Elijah and the prophets of Baal story? The what is pick the right center for our lives. So what? So that we will experience power and purpose. So we'll feel the fire again. Now what? Man, I believe the church needs to get the fire back. If you feel like your life is lacking the fire of power and purpose, how do I get it back? How? I have a friend whose name is Paulo Lopez. He works with churches. He works with our conference here in Virginia. He was telling me recently about a study that he, he was part of. And this, this study articulated that there are, there are seven things that people whose spiritual lives are impactful, whose spiritual lives are meaningful, not only for themselves, but for the folks around them. There are seven practices that they engage with. And here they are. First, people whose lives are filled with the fire of power and passion engage in daily prayer and scripture reading. They do weekly worship, small group Bible study and service. And they regularly tithe and share their faith. Daily prayer and scripture reading, weekly worship, Bible study and service, and regular tithing and sharing of their faith. Uh, now, the good news is that Ebenezer Church is here to, to help us learn how to do these seven things. Uh, a few months ago, we talked about the importance of daily prayer, and I, I shared a, a, a very simple, a basic framework for prayer. It's called a token prayer, TCN, Thanksgiving Confession Needs, TCN, token. Thank you, God, for all you've given me. I confess this is where I've failed you, and God, here's where, I, here's where I'm really struggling. Here's where I need your help. Thanksgiving Confession Needs, and then just be silent and listen to God. It's the most basic form of prayer that we can do every day. Scripture reading. The Bible's a big book. It can be really intimidating. It can be. That's why here at Ebenezer Church, we put together a, 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 an opportunity for folks to, to read the Bible kind of together. We, we published a, a Bible reading list. That's available for you at the Connection Desk. If you're here in worship, if you're joining us online, we're making it available to you online as well. Weekly worship. Give yourselves a pat on the back. You nailed it, church. Well done. Weekly Bible study. We're in that season of the year where we're starting to to ramp up our small groups again. So if you're looking for a small group Bible study to be part of your life this year, stop by the connection desk. They can get you hooked up. Service. If you're looking for a way to serve at Ebenezer Church, you can stop by the connection desk as well. It's becoming a common theme. That's a good place to know. But, you know, it doesn't just have to be through the church. So, this past week was a terrible week. On Thursday night, I took my five-year-old to kindergarten orientation. She's my baby. My little girl. And she... She loved it. Couldn't believe it. Teachers were great. Staff was great. I hated the whole thing. She's going to go to kindergarten tomorrow. Get engaged next week. That's how it feels. But you know while we were there, one of the things my wife and I did, because we always do this with our kids' teachers, is we say, how can we help? Do you want volunteers in your classroom? 
And almost without exception, the teachers have said, yeah. If you're looking for a way to serve, school starts tomorrow. And I believe that if you stop by any local school in your neighborhood and say, hey, I'd be happy to volunteer here once a week or once a month or whatever your time frame is, I believe that they would praise the Lord for you. Daily prayer and scripture reading. Weekly worship, service, Bible study. And then regular tithing and faith sharing. You know, faith sharing is is a tough thing. In fact, those last two, tithing and faith sharing, were called the master indicators. People who engaged in tithing and faith sharing, what the study said is that the people who did those two things were doing the other five things as well. But faith sharing, I think, can be the most intimidating thing on that list. We're going to do an entire sermon series next year about faith sharing. But for now, all you need to know about faith sharing is you don't have to be a theologian to do faith sharing. We just have to be honest about what God has done for us. And I don't know if you noticed, but I did it early in the sermon towards the beginning. I said there have been times I've centered my life on alcohol and relationships and kids and career. But the times when I have felt most joyful, most alive, the times I have felt most on fire with purpose, passion, and power have been those times my life has been centered on Christ. That's faith sharing, church. Elijah's story is as powerful for us today as it was 2,800 years ago. Pick a God. Pick the right God. And experience again the fire of purpose and power and passion in your life. Daily scripture and prayer, weekly worship, group study and service, regular tithing and faith sharing. Church, that's how we get the fire back. Elijah was outnumbered 450 to 1. But he had the fire of God. So nothing was impossible. He rescued the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, the reason that we seek to have the fire of power and purpose back in our lives is not simply for us. It's also for our children and our children's children and all of those who live without the warmth and the beauty of the fire of God. So the only question that remains for us is will we do what God calls us to do so that we can experience and live the life that God always dreamed we could live? Is today the day that you will get the fire of purpose and power back in your life? Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks because you are the source, the true source of all things and being. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, you held nothing back. And you didn't do so so that we could live anemic lives and weak lives. You didn't send Christ so we could live lives of quiet desperation. No, you sent Christ. You sent him so we could experience the fire down in our bones. God, give us the grace today to do the things you've called us to do to experience that fire again.
put you at the center of our lives and watch as our lives become more full of joy, peace, purpose, and power. But not only ours. God, help us to live with fire so that we can set this world ablaze with your love. In the name and to the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.